Saucer summer season. That's right, spooky summer saucer flap. That's right, because we continue being in a flap. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I've noticed a lot of just UFO-related... Yeah, people Sandwich love boards it. and stuff. Yeah. Sandwich boards. Elena, you posted. No, you found one. At, yeah, you found one at Bunners, Nathan, and I posted it. Oh yeah, just yeah. outside of the Lakeview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just feel like we're really in the midst of a flap right now. And so uh, today we are going to really get into it because we're going to talk about, I think, probably the crown jewel in the pantheon. Pantheon? I don't know. Uh, No, there's no crown jewels there. But this is the exciting one. I, I am so looking forward to this. I think in a way... There's sort of decades that are conspiracy decades, and and there are events that spawn a lot. And I feel like Area 51 is the center point for like 10 really great conspiracies. They're just so central. I mean, like Men in Black, right? That that's related to this. And well, we're going to get into it. But I've been I've been looking forward to this for months. It's such an amazing combination of some absolute bonkers false conspiracy theories and some absolute bonkers genuine conspiracies that were going on so i'm looking forward to this one all right but to get us into it i would like to reminisce briefly if i may <laughs> about lee's childhood because i feel like we have spent enough time together that we can now reminisce about each other's childhood true i'm sure though that we shared this childhood no uh, some of it, and I bet you this we did. Yeah. Because one of the things that young Lee was really into <laughs> was a television show called The X-Files. That's right. And there was one moment. Uh, of course, The X-Files, uh, sometimes they just have a monster of the week where they'd be chasing Sasquatch or vampires or whatever. But the main thing that they had going through was this idea that the main character, Mulder, his sister had been abducted by aliens and there was a sort of running thread that they were trying to find the truth about aliens that was being concealed by the government. The moment where Lee was just mind blown at this show was an episode in which it was suggested that it wasn't that the government was covering up aliens, but that the government wanted people to believe in aliens because it was using that to cover up something else. That really was kind of one of, I I remember that, just being so in love with the show after that. And then actually later also being really angry with it because I felt they never, as a show, decided which of those two narratives was in fact the truth. I still think they don't know, like, 20 years on. But it became clear that the that Chris Carter, who was in charge of the show, was just making it up as he went along. Yeah, which is too bad. But yeah. that episode was really exciting and i think it's something that uh the three of us have sort of discovered on our journey through investigating various conspiracies is that yeah some are real some are fake but then some are you know there are different actors who would want you to believe one or the other even though they know that's not true right some people would want you to believe a fake conspiracy for another reason because it hides something else and i think we found that a couple of times that conspiracies sometimes 
are that red herring that get you off the scent and looking at something else while something much bigger, much scarier, and maybe much more dangerous is actually yeah, being tries hidden. Yeah, to draw your attention away from the real thing that's going on, which is maybe way worse. Yeah. Oh, now I'm losing my voice. Oh, this you guys sound a, so sultry. This is going right? to be a scratchy episode. Yeah. The, the I, Joan I've, got, I've got a controversial example of what uh, you guys were just talking about. And this, obviously, we can't get into this because it is going to be several other episodes that we'll have to, to cover this. But I feel like a lot of the September 11th conspiracy theories actually serve to benefit the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Because there was so much time discussing were there bombs in the in the buildings were the airplanes actually holograms all of these things that used up all the oxygen Mm -hmm. and distracted people from the very important question why did the american government sanction an invasion of iraq Mm -hmm. like that to me seemed like a horrendous war crime which because of the confusion caused by all of those circulating conspiracy theories yeah, people weren't yeah. talking about that. Yeah, it never yeah. got any traction. And it doesn't just seem like a war crime to you. I mean, there's a reason that the United States did not sign up to uh, the International Convention uh, for mm-hmm. uh, being able to be held accountable for war crimes. Mm-hmm. But I think you you hit the nail on the head, right? Is that sometimes the conspiracy, when, I don't know how it is for you too, but I think that when you discover that you've been lied to, and you realize that there's this other version of the story, there is a real sense of accomplishment in that. There's a real sense oh, that... Oh, yeah. You figured it out. You figured it out, yeah. right? So for me, the conspiracy has often presented itself as that really compelling counter-narrative that is exciting because if that's true, it means I got it. A lot of people didn't understand. And then to have that turned on its head again, You know, that, oh, no, 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 the ruse was, in fact, you being played by the powers that be. You fell for it. That that could even be part of that dynamic, I think, makes the kind of genres that I've seen also in conspiracy analysis in terms of, oh, it's all true or it's all fake, Mm -hmm. just not plausible because there are these other alternatives. And I think we're going moving away from area 51 but in indeed this is what area 51 turns out a lot to be about yeah i don't think you can discuss area 51 without discussing this idea this idea that sometimes what we think is a conspiracy that has exposed the government is precisely what people in power are encouraging Mm -hmm. us to actually want to propagate that yeah so where are we going to start today how far back are we going to go Let's just talk about, I mean, Area 51 is a top secret base that everybody knows about. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. So, I mean, we mentioned the X-Files. Like, what are some other other places? I'm sure there's been films with Area 51. There's jokes. Futurama, I guarantee you, had an episode that had Area 51 in it. And Roswell and all these other things. Well, and even uh, the highway that is goes past area 51 has been renamed to the extraterrestrial highway so they're cashing in uh on a kind of cult status you know yeah i'm sure there's lots of area um alien themed cafes nearby as well Uh, i bet you they're amazing i bet you they have good little diners (laughs) yeah Yeah, good pie i mean that's part of it it's just part of popular culture at this point it's part of the as soon as you say area 51 you immediately think aliens So what we're going to do today is we're going to sort of unpack that. Uh, We're going to start off by uh, looking at some of the alien theories, uh, specifically uh, an informant named Bob Lazar. We're going to sort of evaluate his claims. 
Uh, then we're going to look at some of the more official history of Area 51. And then after that, we'll get into this idea of disinformation as a method of covering things up. Sounds fantastic. So why don't we start with Bob Lazar? Oh, okay. Seems like a reasonable um, place to start with Area so 51. So I'm sure many people have heard of him or maybe seen interviews. Uh, so he, uh, back in 1989, I believe it was, he made an appearance as an anonymous source. Well, his name was Dennis. His code name was Dennis. He was all sort of in the shadows in this interview. And he made this, he made a, a series of claims that gained a lot of notoriety and attention pretty immediately, like all around the world. So he appeared on Las Vegas television, again, anonymous, anonymously at first, and months later he came out and, and said his name, Bob Lazar. And, and this was done one of those interviews where they like black out your face. Yeah, he, he's like actually sitting in a, like a van in the shadow, kind of, so you can't see, you can only <laughs> see his um, sort of outline. And so he made a series of claims. First, he claimed that he worked in um, an area called S4, which was south of Area 51, and that his job that he had there was to help reverse engineer what was, I think, about nine saucers or alien spacecraft that the U.S. government allegedly had. And he claimed that he also had read a series of briefing documents that described like alien involvement in, in human life over like thousands of years. And he was really the first person who brought Area 51 to the greater spotlight. And suddenly there was discussion of, and discovery of this, this area that no one knew about before. Um, Just out of curiosity, mm -hmm. Elena, it, it's the part of the story with Bob Lazar that the aliens got there through the, the quote-unquote Roswell incident that... How how do do we know this? How do aliens end up apparently, supposedly, uh, in Area Fifty One to begin with? Well, uh, certainly there is a lot of crossover between Area Fifty One and the Roswell incident. A lot of people made the argument that what crashed at Roswell was then taken to Area Fifty One. Okay, and this argument starts to show up in the seventies and nineteen eighties. Have we done an episode on that? No, we actually haven't talked about Roswell. No, I know. I think it was a weather balloon. Is, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it was a Skyhook. Oh, that's right. It was Project Mogul. And yeah. Okay, well, that was their shortest episode <laughs> ever. That was easy. Okay, so he did this big interview. Suddenly, people around the world are talking about Bob Lazar and Area 51. Uh, huge interest. Since then, so he has been, you know, criticized, widely discredited. People are investigating his background. He, he claims to have went to Caltech and MIT, uh, yet... There's no evidence of that in the, you know, in those institutions. He claims that the government wiped it so that they discredit him. No, let's talk about that claim for a second. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, certainly you could go into a computer and change some numbers and erase somebody from a file. It seems totally plausible that the CIA would be able to do something like that with somebody they wanted to make, quote unquote, disappear. Right. Doesn't that seem reasonable to you? But, like, let's say they tried to do it to Elena. Mm -hmm. Let's say they tried to do it to Elena's university career. Yeah. It wouldn't just be the files. It wouldn't just be her official records. Mm. Like, there would also be... Well, I, I would have my own degrees to show you that yeah. are framed. I'd have ah. evidence of it as well, right? Good point. Yeah. I'd have transcripts. I'd Friends have things would that I could, remember Friends you. would remember me, professors. Uh, there would be papers I wrote that yeah. maybe I would have kept or something, okay. or, you know? So there would be other things to corroborate y Yearbook that. photos, yeah. which would be hard to retake. 
Yeah, yeah definitely hard later. to retake. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine yeah. the CIA going to everybody and being like, were you in the class of like 98? Because yeah. we're going to need to replace your yearbook with this other yearbook. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it seems like when you first hear that, you think, oh, yeah, sure, they could erase him from that school. But then when you actually think about how involved you are yeah, that's in a, a school, point. it becomes a lot more difficult to pull off. That's a good point. Okay. And so he claimed, too, that the the propulsion mechanism of these these ufos uh was unique and basically nothing that you know humans would have access to that there was no such technology at the time that that would be able to do that he said it was fueled by atomic element 115 which now since then since this time i think in laboratories people have briefly been able to synthesize it and it's now on our like our chart um our chemistry chart he has all these really specific claims and he's a really interesting character because he you can tell he's kind of mad scientisty but he doesn't come off necessarily that way he just seems super bright as a young kid he was interested in like you know he'd put a jet on his bike and he like he was just always fascinated by like propulsion Mm -hmm. and fireworks and like explosives and all sorts of things like that um and since then since this time he's sort of dropped out of the limelight and i think he wanted to as well because he got a lot of attention then he also had some troubles with the law that's what i was just going to say yeah so at some point uh, since then i can't remember exactly when maybe in the 90s he was found to have like aided and abetted some sort of prostitution ring or brothel and so he was charged for that i think he was just given community service in the end and all throughout this he stuck to his same story and the same claims um, and now he owns and operates uh, United Nuclear Scientific Equipment and Supplies that actually sells various kinds of radioactive and, um, you know, sciencey materials to people hmm. who need them. And I don't know, what do you, have you seen much about Bob Lazar? Have you seen any interviews with him and any videos? He's sort of soft-spoken. He He's sounds soft-spoken. reasonable. Yeah. Like he seems, I can see why people believe him when he says I what can he see says. why they do too. And And he, in the interviews that I saw with him, he was talking about like going up uh, on that highway that runs close to Area 51. He apparently knew the times at which the hangars were going to be open. And he brought other people there, his wife, uh, some friends, and they got to see stuff that uh, maybe they shouldn't have been able to see. So there are parts to his story that don't seem like complete fiction, you know, that where you could verify this. Hey, did you go with your husband to this highway and see some stuff? And it's like, yeah, I did. Uh, I think the most important thing is that a few years ago, the American government admitted for the first time that, yes, Area 51 or Groom Lake, as right. it's officially called, mm-hmm. we yeah. should say that at some point, that Area 51 did exist. Like they came out and they said, yes, we do have this top secret base. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Elena, to interrupt, but that's actually important for us in terms of our sources, because one of a key source for this podcast is Annie Jacobson's Area 51. And that is she was able to get really unprecedented access to people who work there, in part because some of the security, I don't know what the technical term is, when it's, the, the, the classification is lapsed. Um, and so Freedom of Information Act. Like okay. There had been enough time passed that it was you were exactly. Yeah. It was declassified. I think it's the time limit is generally years fifty years yeah. if you don't ask to reclassify it. So now people are able to start talking about stuff they were doing in the fifties mm-hmm. and even into the early sixties. Uh, that book is fascinating. It is one of our main sources, but I want to return to that book eventually at the end of this podcast, okay. maybe because I thought it was so well researched. It was 
very well written. It was like exceedingly carefully done. Mm -hmm. And then something really weird happens in the last chapter of that book that I want to discuss. But remind me and we'll come back (laughs) to it. So Bob Lazar, you're sort of left. There's, I guess, a few different options for Bob Lazar. He genuinely believes all of this and it's, you know, made up to some degree. It's very detailed. All of his like recounting, all of his, like it's very specific, the stories and narratives he's telling. Or is he a source of disinformation without even knowing it? Like, is he a puppet of the government? Is, is he telling a story that the government wants us to listen to? And like you were just saying, Lee, like to, to detract us from mm. maybe whatever it is they actually are doing. So I don't know. Where do you guys sit on Bob Lazar? It's, I mean, it's interesting because at the same time, because he was arguing that uh, all these dramatic improvements in technology that we've seen over the last few decades were due in part because we were reverse engineering alien technology. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the 90s, in the zeros? Knots. In the knots? In the odds? In the (laughs) odds? We did see like this dramatic change in our technology. And for a lot of people, they might say, well, how is this able to happen so quickly? Mm -hmm. But I think that in order to understand Bob Lazar's story, and in fact, the story of lots of people, like Elena, you and I went to that UFO convention. Mm Mm-hmm. And we heard a lot of stories about alien invasions, about secret bases, about uh, like alien experiments being done on humans. All of these stories, I I think we need to get into. And I think that the origin of these stories might actually be more, maybe in a a sense, more sinister than an alien invasion. Mm -hmm. So in order to, to do that... Why don't we go back and we look at this actual base, this base that Bob Lazar claimed he worked at and that all this weird stuff happened at, because it is a pretty weird place. So why don't we start with, let's look at Groom Lake. Let's look at the history of Area 51. Okay. So we really need to go back even as, as, <laughs> as all historians, Elena, you can attest to this, mm-hmm. right? You always have to go even one step before. So and in this podcast, it's usually back to the Cold War. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, to get to the Cold War, just briefly, the end of the Second World War is happening, you know, in the spring uh, of 1945. And already at that time and a bit earlier, the Allied powers are distrustful of uh, one of them amongst their midst. So that is uh, America and England and uh, Canada uh, are are not so sure about the Soviet Union (laughs) who are fighting the Nazis on their side. They they weren't that comfortable with Stalin, who was clearly a monster. Yeah. During World War II, he was our monster. Exactly. He was a monster. He was a dangerous dude uh, on our side. But, you know, and so people were very seriously looking at the end of the Second World War and thinking about political realignment. In the midst of this, uh, I mean, they were doing this very openly to some extent and publicly. There were economic forums that were happening around this time to try and align the world economy. But there was also a very serious concern about the Soviet Union as a military threat. And a decision was made. Well, I mean, this is one thing among very many things that are happening in this period to address, um, you know, the end of the Second World War. When Germany falls, there is a decision to support Germany economically. The Americans developed something called the Marshall Plan to support Germany economically. The the theory being that your enemy today could be your customer of tomorrow. Instead of forcing them to sort of pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, why not lend them money, which they have to pay back, and then they will use that money to buy stuff from you. 
That's a pretty smart idea, actually. Well, and also, if you think about the fact that part of the reason why the Nazis were able to come to power in the 30s to begin with is because of the massive economic devastation that was Mm -hmm. imposed on Germany after the First World War. I mean, it makes sense to say, hey, maybe we won't do that this time. Let's not do that a second time. That's a very good point. And so there was this Marshall Plan that was created. Now, the reason we're talking about this is because... Uh, Annie Jacobson, I, I, I quote her directly because I thought it was a really important piece of information she discovered. A bit of that money was funneled away from Germany, away from the entire thing, and was put into building this secret military base at a place called Groom Lake. And that place was chosen for very specific reasons. One of them, well, a few reasons. One, it was relatively inaccessible, although it is fairly close to was well, close to Las Vegas, but Las at the Vegas, time, Las Vegas you. was not a particularly burgeoning metropolis. Right, that's true. It was true. a tiny, out-of-the-way town. It is a bit awkward today that it's that close. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so geographically, <clears throat> right, it was perfect. Like, it was sort of couched between two mountains. Exactly. It was a dry lake bed. Exactly. Yeah, which is perfect flat for... Flat in the middle, for yeah. Landing strips. In, in fact, they didn't even need to build landing strips at the beginning because the lake bed was so flat. So mm-hmm. this is a dried-out salt uh, lake bed. And they built uh, a secret military base there under the, uh, under the control of uh, the Air Force with this money from the Marshall Plan. Which they, keeps that off the grid. It mm-hmm. keeps it off the books. Exactly. This is the point of this little uh, origin story is that as Area 51 is created, it is created almost outside of all the regular structures, even the secret stuff within the American government. There is no direct oversight by anybody. Mm-hmm. They don't. They were exempt from all the environmental regulations uh, that would govern everybody else, including secret military bases. They were exempt from that, so they could do nuclear tests, underground nuclear tests, whatever. It was like they didn't exist. It was like they didn't exist. And in fact, and this is going to become, I think, really important later in the development of this story, Uh, In fact, other people with top security clearance didn't know that it existed and didn't know the projects that they were working on. Apparently, inside Area 51, people also didn't know what other people were doing. It was Mm -hmm. very compartmentalized. Uh, People were really hived off from each other. But the important thing here is this base was created in such a way that there was no oversight. The president doesn't know what's happening there. In fact, when Bill Clinton becomes president of the United States, he turns to uh, the person he's going to make chief justice and says, or uh, defense guy, whatever, Mm -hmm. you have to look it up, but he says to this guy, if I put you in there, will you give me the truth about if there's aliens in Area 51? Mm -hmm. So it's like that. It's like even the, you know, the top public officials don't actually have access to what's happening here. This place uh, is contested over its history. The CIA wants a piece of it. The Air Force doesn't want to give up control, et cetera, et cetera. The Army is like, why aren't we part of this as well? But throughout its history, uh, the important point is that it is basically a place unto itself Mm -hmm. with its own rules, uh, with its own command structure that is not really accountable to anybody else. It's totally off the grid. Totally off the grid. And they get up to some weird stuff. Oh, yeah. Well... I mean, just imagine, (laughs) just imagine you are, because they have been told, and this actually reminds me, 
a lot of, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but a lot of the uh, Philip Zimbardo experiments, uh, the, uh, the Stanford prison experiment, where you basically set up the conditions in such a way that something terrible's got to happen mm. here. And so what you do is you get a whole bunch of, uh, well, they were, they were men, uh, by and large, who are working on behalf of the United States to keep the United States safe in a period of intense anxiety and stress socially with the Cold War. And you say, we'll give you unlimited resources and we're not going to check up on you. I just yeah, feel like... see you later. Yeah, I yeah. feel like those boys, are, yeah. those boys are going to get up to something. And the stakes are so high because the yeah. stakes are world domination. The yeah. stakes are uh, mm-hmm. like the apocalypse. The exactly. stakes are Armageddon. Apocalypse versus world domination. Yeah. Like th- that's what you're playing for here. Uh, and that's then what it just... Area 51 then just becomes this microcosm unto itself with no oversight and infinite amount of money and technology. What could go wrong? I wonder. Let's hear about what went wrong. So, so what did they get up to? Well, one of the things they got up to, here's the thing about the Soviet Union. It's really easy to hide stuff in the Soviet it's Union. It's a big place. Mm-hmm. It's really, really, really big. After World War II, uh, the American government had grabbed a lot of photographs and a lot of documents that German intelligence had had from their spying on the Soviet Union. But of course, that became out of date almost immediately. And then, the, uh, as we've talked about before, the Soviets develop uh, the nuclear bomb, which sort of ratchets up the, the tension and the stakes. And the Americans desperately want to know what's happening in that country. And they have virtually no spies. Yeah. So this was something that was actually a shock to me. But that in the midst or, or just at the beginning of the Red Scare the United States basically has no functioning spy network in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, the obverse is untrue, though. The Soviets had a ton of spies... That is true. ...in North America. Hence, they got the nuclear bomb. There's no satellites back then. So what are you left with? You're left with airplanes. But that's tricky to pull off for two reasons. One, airplanes can get shot down. Two, if you're flying an American airplane over the Soviet Union, that is dangerously mm-hmm. close to just invading the Soviet Union and starting World War III. And because of mutually assured destruction, like even a small altercation mm-hmm. could lead to nuclear annihilation. And I, I didn't know this until I was researching this. There were a lot of American airplanes, spy planes, shot down in the early 50s. I'm going to talk about airplanes now. <laughs> there was a 1950, there was a privateer shot down over the Baltic Sea. In 1951, there was a Lockheed Neptune shot down near Vladivostok. In 1952, there was two RB-29s shot down by uh, Soviet fighters near Japan. Now, the thing that all of these planes have in common is they're all large, propeller-driven aircraft that have a ceiling of about 30,000 feet. Now, at the time, the best Soviet interceptor was the MiG-17, and it had a ceiling of 54,000 feet, so you can't fly a spy plane without bumping into a MiG-17 and getting shot Mm -hmm. at the sky. They realize we're going to need to build something weird. We're going to need to build something that no one's ever done before, fly at 70,000 feet. And I just, while you were talking, looked up uh, how many time zones are there in the Soviet Union, and there are 10. Wow. It It is immense. And now you not only need to get across the Soviet Union without being shot down, you need to get there. Mm-hmm. And you can't just drive up a tanker, whatever you do with tankers. What, what, what drive? I don't know. Fly? 
float. You mean like a? You can't float up a, you know, oh, like an, an aircraft, aircraft carrier, carrier oh, okay. to the shores of yeah. the Soviet Union. Be like, yeah, we're not doing anything here. I mean, so Does this thing. Does camouflage it covered in bushes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this Just thing. a giant floating bush. Nothing yeah. to see here. <laughs> not only does it have to go high, it has to go far. Yeah, it has to go super far. It's such a massive country. And so let me just uh, just to clarify, to go higher, it's less detectable. Well, it's you have to go high up so that those MiG-17s can't shoot you right, down. Right, okay. And at that point, you're also harder to see. And if they can see, you have some plausible deniability. Right. You could be like, I don't know. I don't know what's flying over your right. airspace. That's okay. weird. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, what is it that, like, certainly the military with radar and things like that would be able to detect you. But as a civilian, now it's suddenly like there's some glimmer in the sky and then it's gone, right? If you see anything at all. Whereas... At 30,000 feet, a big propeller mm-hmm. airplane. You're like, it's oh, obvious. that's a, there's, there's yeah. there's an a propeller airplane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for people listening, that's about how high you fly when you go across the ocean in an airliner. Like, you, yeah. you can see a plane that you high. You can see planes like that, exactly. So this goes to a uh, top secret section of Lockheed uh, called the Skunk Works. They do a lot of top secret aircraft stuff, and they start working on this thing. And when eventually what they, they put together is something called the U-2. And... It looks like a a glider, giant wings so that it can fly for long distances on very little fuel. It flies at 70,000 feet. And I have got to talk about this thing because it's bonkers. I've downloaded from the CIA, I've got this massive declassified giant book. We'll post some pictures of it, especially the fully redacted pages. Yeah, there are pages that are only black. Yeah, so frustrating. But there's still enough good stuff in here that I can say a lot of things about this project. It needed to be absolutely top secret because they needed to be able to deny that it even existed. If the Soviets said, what are you flying over us? They had to be able to say, we don't have anything that can fly that high. And and as far as I know, this would be an act of war. Sure. Right. So again... <laughs> You're intruding on someone else's airspace. This, That's war. Right. So this it's very serious business now not to get caught. Well, and President Eisenhower, who was the president at the time, took it very seriously. This was a guy, I mean, I disagree with some stuff Eisenhower did, but he was a guy who knew what war was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did not want war. And so what he said about this project was, I'll do my best Eisenhower now. No idea what he sounded like. Neither do I. Old white man, I guess. (laughs) I want this whole thing to be a civilian operation. If uniformed personnel of the armed forces of the United States fly over Russia, it is an act of war. And I don't want any part of it. Which meant that the pilots had to be civilians. Mm. But where are you going to get these pilots from? You're going to get them from the Air Force. Mm -hmm. So what they had to do is they had to get Air Force pilots, fire them, kick them out of Mm. the Air Force with the promise of them returning them to their Air Force with their pension and everything. So when they were flying these top secret planes, they wore civilian gear. They Mm. didn't wear uniforms. Interesting. The plane itself had to, weirdly, it had to be invulnerable to interception Uh, so that it couldn't be shot down. It had to also be super vulnerable because if something went wrong, you wanted this plane to disintegrate. You wanted no part of this plane left. Actually, that was part of the plan of the plane uh, from the beginning, and I will quote from this manual. The approach was that we were unlikely to lose one. If we did lose one, the pilot would not survive. We were told, and it was part of our understanding of the situation, that it was almost certain that the plane would disintegrate and that we could take it as a certainty that no pilot would survive, and that although they would know where the plane came from, it would be difficult to prove it in any convincing way. 
So if something goes wrong with that airplane over the Soviet Union, it is going to basically disintegrate into a bunch of tiny bits, and the pilot will be absolutely killed for hmm. sure. Well, and wasn't there also that extra safety mechanism of the silver dollar with the, whatever, the poison arrow inside? Do you guys like know about this? Or yeah. All the... Am I right about this, Nathan, that all the pilots were given basically a suicide pill? The pilots were given potassium cyanide, uh, a thin glass ampule containing a cyanide, which would probably kill you in a couple seconds. And the idea was, rather than get caught, Mm -hmm. you kill yourself. Uh, That brings me to, I think, maybe my favorite story ever. Is it Gary Powers? Oh, we'll get to Gary Powers. Now, I'd like to read again from this redacted, top-secret government paper. All right, I'd like to tell you guys the story of the Lemon Drop Kid. All right. Okay, so this is uh, a report about several uh, crashes that happened or almost happened. The second flight, uh, this is over the Soviet Union, the second flight came close to crashing, but not through the efforts of interceptors. The pilot of Mission 2029 was who had flown the first U-2 mission over Moscow on the 5th of July. He was known to his colleagues as the Lemon Drop Kid because he always carried these hard candies in the knee pocket of his flight suit. Despite warnings to all pilots about the danger of opening the helmet faceplate at high altitudes, several pilots were known to do so. Some ate candy bars, favored lemon drops. On the morning of 10th December, was undergoing pre-breathing, the Air Force enlisted man who oversaw his pre-flight regimen placed a suicide pill in the right-hand knee pocket of his flight suit. Unaware that this pocket also contained his supply of lemon drops. So after he takes off, he's, uh, he's, you know, he's flying around, he's in the mission. He began indulging in his habit of sucking lemon drops. About midway into the mission, he opened his faceplate and popped into his mouth what he thought was another lemon drop. After closing the faceplate, he began sucking on the object and thought it strange that it had no flavor and was much smoother no. than the previous lemon drops. Oh. Although tempted to bite down, oh. he decided instead to reopen his faceplate and see what it, he had in his mouth. Spitting the object into his hand, he saw he had been sucking on the cyanide pill with its lethal contents of potassium cyanide. Just a thin layer of glass had stood between him and death. Oh, man. The loss, and this is where the government cares, the loss of his aircraft over Bulgaria would have exposed the U-2 program to worldwide publicity and would probably have resulted in an early end to overflights. Wow. That story is bonkers. Wow. But but even a, a flight that goes well in this plane is bonkers because mm-hmm. they're so far outside of the norm. For example, one of the problems that pilots had to face, I'll quote again from the manual, Even more important than the problem of boiling fuel, which is a thing that happens at that altitude, was the problem of boiling blood, namely the pilots. At altitudes above 65,000 feet, fluids in the human body will vaporize unless the body can be kept under pressure. Furthermore, the reduced atmospheric pressure placed considerable stress on the pilot's cardiovascular system and did not provide adequate oxygenation of the blood. Keeping the pilot alive at the extreme altitudes required for overflights therefore called for a totally different approach to environmental equipment. So we're not supposed to be up there. Mm-hmm. Imagine your blood just boiling away at 65,000 feet. Like these aircraft were ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were successful. The Soviets, they knew something was up there, but their MiG-17s couldn't get up there. And so they would, they would say to the American government, we know you're flying over us. We know you're doing this. 
And the American government did a great move, which is always handy in any relationship. When you get accused by your partner of something that you know you did, you act hurt. Right. You're like, oh, how could you? How could you think I'd, I would do something like that? Oh, I mean, in, this in, says more about fact, you than exactly, me. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, you're probably flying over me right now. Yeah, right? that's yeah, right. That's really what's so happened. That's this is, I, I can't even right now. I need a second. <laughs> so basically, they are, they are gaslighting the Soviet Union. And the Soviets are like, we know you're doing this. We know you're flying something and we can't get to it. And the American government's all, eh, it's probably fine. And the reason they knew to some extent was because they not only are they picking this stuff on radar, but their MiGs are flying up to whatever, 50,000 yeah. feet. At that point, you can definitely mm -hmm. see what that is. Oh, yeah. They right? knew it was it's there. It's there. It's just annoyingly Couldn't too get far away. Yeah. yeah. Which allowed the Americans to just continue going, doop-dee-doo, nothing to see here. Then something changes. Uh, in 1960, they lose a U-2. The American government, uh, the CIA, loses uh, a pilot, Gary Powers. They lose contact with them. They don't know what happened. They're confident that the plane would have disintegrated and Powers would have been killed. So they're not too worried about it. It should be fine. The Soviets start saying things like, you know, we think we're probably flying over us. And the Americans are still like, no, we're not. It's ridiculous to even say that. This is absurd. How insulting. And after the Soviets allow the Americans to go on like that for some time, they say, look, we have your pilot. <laughs> and the Americans go, damn it, Gary. <laughs> he so, was still alive and everything. And so Gary had chosen not to bite down on that suicide pill. What he would have been given, right? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really... I, I don't know if we can blame Gary Powers for it. I mean, listen, I wouldn't have done it. No. I wouldn't have bitten that. I would, yeah, right. I, I'm not blaming him. Don't get me wrong. So we'll have we have a picture that maybe we'll post of his trial of Gary Powers' trial in the Soviet Union. Yeah, there's a lot of people there. It was a huge, like PR boon for the Soviets because the Americans couldn't lie about this because no. there he was, and not only that, he confessed. He confessed to spying. He was sentenced to ten years in prison. And then he was eventually traded for a master Soviet spy, a guy called uh, Rudolf Abel. And they also threw in a student as like, it's like, it's like a hockey trade. Right. Yeah. The Americans also got a student back, like a draft pick. A draft pick, yeah. Yeah. In 1961. And so now the Americans are like, oh man, they can shoot down our U-2s because that's what happened. It was a surface to air missile right. that brought it down. Also shot down a MiG by accident. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, this is like dangerous, dicey wow. stuff. Can I just say, while you were talking about this, a bit of a, uh, an aside, but it is sweet to think about a period where truth and lies still mattered. Like when you got caught red-handed, you were embarrassed You didn't about just it. double down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you were just... Yeah, exactly. Like, the, it, it feels like if this story played out today, everybody would be like, yeah, sure. Sure, you were flying. Sure, you were lying. Sure, you shot him down. Sure, You know, it was just seems like a less jaded even though it's kind of seems so quaint yeah even though they're dealing with the end of the world mm -hmm. and armageddon and things it seems like lee is nostalgic for a time when shame still existed yeah mm -hmm. those were the days other people's shame yeah so now the americans are in a like a tough bind they're like oh we want to keep spying but they can shoot down the u2 we can either stop spying or maybe just maybe build a crazier plane an even crazier plane than the u2 which was all all like already a very crazy plane so of course what are they going to do 
Stop spying. Spy? Definitely stop more, spying. Or right? crazier plane. More covert, crazier plane. Yeah. <laughs> and they had actually been working on this one since 1957. In 1959, Lockheed wins the competition to build it. It is called the A-12 Oxcart, and this thing is just 100% bananas. It is so... Look, I'm not even a plane guy, but when I discovered about this plane, I became a plane guy for a bit. Like, I was watching YouTube videos of pilots talking about their missions in this thing. I was looking up specs. Uh, Apparently, there was no plane that the United States built that had the capabilities in terms of speed and height that this plane did for like the next 50 years. Wow. Yeah. So in 1960, they already have the tech that is amazing in say, you know, uh, 2005 or mm-hmm. 2010. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what they were doing like today, today, but it was really ahead of its time. I'll have to, I'll give you some vague numbers. I'll, I'll pass it over to Nathan, who obviously has memorized all this stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, I what, it flew at 90 to almost 100,000 feet? Yeah, I mean, you might as well just say 100,000 feet. It was almost at 100, yeah, which was significantly higher. That's than, outer space. You're in space at that yeah. point. That's crazy. Like, these guys became astronauts. Yeah. And was it Mach 3? Mach 3.2. Mach 3.2. So Although that's pretty close. I'll give it to him. Okay. <laughs> 100,000 feet and Mach 3.2. So we're now faster than a bullet fired out of a shotgun. Yeah. Like this is that fast. And this, and I've referred to this story before. You have to remember, this is being produced only at Area 51. So nobody knows that this thing exists. Even inside Area 51, there's only... Uh, there was a, they they had a term for need to know. That is to say, only if you needed to know what somebody was doing in some building, did you actually get to know. You didn't mm-hmm. otherwise get to find out what people were doing. And so even the pilots, if they weren't flying the ox cart, they didn't know about it. Only once you became an ox cart pilot, even at Area 51, even with full security clearance, you would not have known about it. This, I referred to this in a previous podcast, where you'll have a fighter pilot for the Air Force that's not at Area 51 flying what they believe to be the the most up-to-date mm-hmm. aircraft. And then... An F-104 or something. Right. You know, just what I was thinking. Yeah. And, uh, or an F-102, I guess. Well, maybe at a pitch. <laughs> maybe an F-106. And then he looks up. The pilot looks up above him. Into outer space, Mm -hmm. right? Into that 100,000 feet area. And there's a a black triangular object Mm -hmm. flying faster than a speeding bullet. What what the hell is going on, right? I mean, this is where I feel like the UFO stuff really does have some legs. Like, very credible stuff. People seeing, you know, unexplained. How do you explain that? Well, does this also explain... Or can it explain how someone like Bob Lazar could come to work at this place and see this technology that's so advanced? Because it is unlike anything he would have seen before. Like you said, you know, it's decades ahead of its time. So, yeah, sure, you might think it's like otherworldly, but maybe it's just something they've been developing. I mean, describe what this plane looks like. If you were to, like, squint and see from afar, it really just looks like a flying triangle. Yeah. yeah. And you, we're looking at it it looks at what's about four inches by three inches. If that were at 100,000 feet, mm-hmm. what would that look like? Flying faster than a speeding bullet. I mean, it would be a triangular blurish totally. thing. Yeah. Maybe. A speck yeah. of light, uh, you know. It starts to make sense. This is why 
when in order to talk about like evaluate Bob Lazar, I think it was important to go back and look at some of the things that were actually going on mm-hmm. in Area Fifty One, because it would be so easy to see people in their insane flight suits to keep their blood from boiling, to see these bizarre aircraft that look like nothing else on Earth, and because you don't need to know these things, you don't know what's going on. Maybe you're just you know working on a computer somewhere. Mm-hmm. I could totally see somebody being like, I think that there's something weird going on at this base. Oh, there is something weird going on. Well, especially because it is so compartmentalized. So it's yeah. like, oh, I only know this small bit of information. Lazar even said they had like buddies that they could like his buddy Barry or somebody, his working, <laughs> his research buddy. And that's the only guy he could kind of talk, talk to, to about stuff. And so they all even had their own little yeah. sort of crews, let alone if they're in a different department than you're in. You're yeah. doing something totally different than what I'm working on. Like... And but, if, but that level of secrecy wouldn't stop Scuttlebutt. No, of course yeah. not. It would be people it would all talking it. all sorts of nonsense sure. and making wild speculation and yeah. guesses and everything. But think now also, I mean, this is, we're talking about people inside Area 51. What's it going to be like for now, say, the people living in uh, Las Vegas who are going to, in some way, experience these overnight flybys, right? I mean, these things are being tested out there. They, um, Air, Groom Lake does have a restricted airspace directly above it. But these planes were being flown, once they started working well, were being flown all across the United States. And again, uh, only at night. But, you know, you would see, people would see stuff like this. People would see weird lights really far up in the sky going incredibly fast and doing strange things. Or the Air Force or the CIA would realize, "Uh uh-oh, we just flew an A-12 over top of a passenger plane. Mm -hmm. And so then what you would have to do is you'd have to meet that passenger plane when it landed and there'd be a couple guys in black suits... Men in black. And they'd say, <laughs> yeah, I want you to sign these forms. You didn't see anything. But wait, did that work all the time? Because there was a guy, right, who, and we've talked about him before, haven't we, on this podcast, uh, where he didn't go along with it. He saw something, probably oh, yeah. an ox cart. Yep. Actually, and that point, because I just realized we've hit like the almost an hour mark already. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think this has got to be a two-parter. Okay. To get to the... So when we come back, we will talk about some of the ways that the CIA and the Air Force used disinformation to try to hide what was in plain sight. Mm -hmm. To Because, I mean, how do you hide an airplane? It's in the sky. You can't hide that. And so in the next episode, I think we'll come back and we'll talk about some really shady stuff that the CIA and Air Force got up to. Sweet. Let's, let's go uh, let's go look for some UFOs. <laughs> I'm in. Okay. <laughs> 